Governor Doug Ducey kicked off the 2022 legislative session by delivering his final State of the State address. His eight years as governor of Arizona are coming to an end, and everyone, it seems, is closely watching how his last year will unfold. Tax cuts, COVID-19, school choice and school spending, border security, and other things were on his mind as he gave the speech. The governor also invoked the words of his high school football coach, who told players to play the game to the bitter end. Welcome to The Gaggle, a politics podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez with Ron Hansen. Today, we'll be breaking down the final State of the State speech from Ducey and get a sense of what we can expect from his last year in office. We'll also talk about the shifting political winds here in Arizona that will affect the national and local picture during this election cycle. For all of that, we're joined by Daniel Scarpinato. He served as Governor Ducey's Chief of Staff from 2018 to 2021 and has been part of the governor's team since the governor won his first term in office after the 2014 elections. He advised on the governor's State of the State speech and is now a partner at Ascent Media, a national advertising and political consulting firm. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. What are the big headlines from the governor's State of the State address this year? Well, I think that uh, a, a billion dollar investment in water, obviously, really big. This is an issue that w- has been an issue, but I think now uh, more regular people are starting to realize the significance of it. So that's a major investment. And to actually be able to potentially have a pathway towards the kind of infrastructure you would need to build for desalinization or uh, other sources of water um, is a really big deal, and the state has the one-time cash to do that. So I, I think that's a, a really big one. Obviously, his comments on the border and and some of the policies there, that's, uh, I think, issue one, two, and three in Arizona right now, if you were to go out and do a poll. But I really do think that, the, to me, the most um, headline grabbing part of the speech, the part of the speech that seems to be already getting the most attention. Um, and where I think he drove the most passion and energy was around school choice and the need for additional school choice options. You know, having been involved with the governor since day one, it's just amazing to see how the education debate has evolved and how post COVID I really think that there is a whole different approach um, around the priorities in education. The debate was almost entirely about money for so long, and I really think that's changed. Um, so I think that there is a real energy that the governor tapped into with the speech. And it's also just something that he is really personally passionate about, um, and it's not for reasons that some reporters might think because he wants to help a bunch of charter school operators make money. It's because he really personally believes that it's the way to help kids. So I think this moment kind of has been building. And uh, to me, that was the most, um, the, the part of the speech that I think was the strongest. 
Okay, so I'm going to bring it back to an old subject, then uh, I'll ask about the money. Uh, the governor wants to make summer school available for students uh, to help manage the the learning difficulties there in this COVID era. He wants to cut taxes. You mentioned the infrastructure money, closing the border. How does he propose to pay for these policy proposals, and how much of this requires using federal dollars? Uh, you know, where how do we get this to to pencil out? Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, he's in a position no governor has been in in Arizona, I think it's fair to say ever, which is that the state is just flush in cash. If you go back and look at back when I was a reporter covering Janet Napolitano, and it's like we were announced, you know, she was announcing $10 million here, $10 million there. It seemed like the state had a lot of revenue, but I think in uh, comparison to where we're at now with these surpluses, it's it's not even close. So there is tons of cash flowing. Um, a lot of that, the budget people are going to say is one time. The reality is nobody really knows, but it's safe to say it's one time so that you're not in a position like the state was during the Napolitano years where you're where you're obligated. To, to do this on an ongoing basis. So the the bottom line is I think these a program like that is is a one-time program. Um, and there's lots of money for it, whether that's general fund or for federal dollars, quite frankly. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity for investment. Um, and frankly, finding places where you can put these dollars without just creating ongoing programs it is a challenge. Um, and I think that, you know, landing on water infrastructure and uh, education and border, I mean, those are pretty good places. I think the bottom line is there's a lot of money available. The governor's in a position because of all the economic growth that's happening in the state right now to really put forward some proposals that no other governor would have been able to do. I mean, I remember I one year when we finally had a surplus early on, I mean, the first couple of years we were cutting and it was like, we've got $80 million. I mean, now they might have $4 billion. So there's a, a lot of cash available. Yeah. Uh, to be clear, when you talk about one-time money, how much of that is federal dollars? How much of it is from, for example, the the recent infrastructure legislation that was passed? Uh, how much of that is from additional state resources that uh, that are new or from you know unexpected windfalls? Well, I'm happy to be talking to you as the retired chief of staff, so I don't know. And I'm happy to not know and be involved in the details on that. So that would be a question for them, but I think that they have a plethora of, uh, of revenue streams, both from the general fund, um, but also these federal dollars, which do need to be put someplace that's smart um, and, and that can benefit the state. Looking at the legislature sort of more broadly and the governor's relationship with um, some of the, the leaders down there, Moving into this session, how do you view sort of the functional relationship of 
the state's executive and legislative branches in the wake of the ballot review that created a very clear rift um, last year between the Senate and everyone else, and at least on that one big issue between the Republican leadership down there. Yeah. Well, it might be hard for you to believe this, but I've had I've gotten to be in in these rooms that are private and that aren't with the media or all of that. And the, the fact of the matter is the relationship between the speaker, uh, President Fan and the governor couldn't be warmer. And he's now worked with these folks. They've worked together now for longer than the governor's worked with any other legislative leaders. They're really great people. I think they're in this for all the right reasons. And so there is a warmth, a collegiality, and a relationship there um, that is really beneficial. And I will say, despite all the theatrics that come along with uh, the Capitol, uh, his relationship with Rebecca Rios and uh, Reggie Bolding is really strong. I was in the room when he brought them all in and said, we want to do a special session on wildfires. And uh, Representative Boldane and, and Senator Rios were like, yeah, how do we get this done? So I just think that there isn't really that much drama behind the scenes. Um, these are people who I think trust each other, give each other the benefit of the doubt. The challenge really is the margins uh, that the Republicans have, which couldn't be any slimmer. And the fact that it it's not, no secret that there are some divisions within these caucuses. There's divisions within the Democratic caucuses. And in fact, when we were trying to work on gaming and some of these other issues where we needed the Democrats, they were very transparent about the fact that they've got the same issues in their caucuses as the Republicans do, that they couldn't deliver every vote on everything. Um, and so uh, so those, I think, are some of the things that, that will be challenges for the legislative leadership and for the governor in the session ahead. But I think all of, and, and also you have a lot of new members. There's pros and cons to that because you've had so many people resign, um, or uh, tragically, we lost Frank Pratt. So there are many new members. Um, and you also have a lot of people running for other offices who are still there. So all of those, I think, are things that are swirling around. But I will tell you, I think one of the biggest challenges last session was that nobody was around. Members weren't around. Uh, the media wasn't around. The lobbyists weren't around. The Capitol was empty. When we would go over to negotiate the budget in these budget meetings, we'd walk into to an empty uh, Capitol. And you really do need people down there working together. And so, you know, there was, a, I think, a, a, a kind of a general apathy at the Capitol and not much urgency to get anything done. Certainly among leadership, legislative leadership, um, the appropriations chairs, they really wanted to land the plane on the session. But in terms of, you know, the Democrats and some rank and file members, 
I think everybody was just fine with it it going along as long as possible. That will all be different because people will be back down at the Capitol. And I think that will be to the benefit of uh, the speaker, the president and the governor. So I, I want to circle back to your uh, assessment of the relationship with uh, the Senate president, uh, Karen Fan and the governor. Um, we had a meeting with uh, President Fan in December. We asked her about uh, the upcoming session and uh, how this um, session, her priorities squared with the governor's. And she made pretty clear that she had had no conversations with the governor's office uh, at that point, uh, a month before the session would be upon us. Uh, we did not get the sense that there was much relationship there at all. Um, can you help add some color around that? Uh, is that a reasonable assessment? And do you think that that poses any kind of hurdles to proceeding with the governor's agenda uh, when the Senate president has made clear she has her own ideas of what the priorities need to be? Well, I will just say, full disclosure, Karen Fan is a good friend of mine. I think the world of her, obviously, that you know my relationship with the governor, and I think Rusty Bowers is one of the great statesmen in Arizona history and will be remembered that way. So I, I like I said, I'm not there. I don't know every meeting that's on the calendar um, these days, but what I do know is that uh, what I've seen is that these are people who respect each other, um, who get along, um, who do talk frequently. And, um, and I've seen the opposite. I've seen the opposite uh, with a Republican governor and Republican leaders when I was a House staffer uh, working for uh, Speaker Kirk Adams and Speaker Andy Tobin and Governor Brewer was there. And there was really a different relationship between the legislative and executive. And I just see people who get along, who have never had a bad word to say about each other privately or publicly um, or in a room together. And so to me, that is a very special and rare thing that I think is a really, really to the benefit of the state. And like I said, you know. Uh, while I don't agree with the Democrats on everything, I do give the Democratic leaders credit for on some of these key issues, um, really putting partisan politics aside. And I think you'd be shocked. I think you'd be really surprised if you were in the room and saw how these folks interact with each other. Um, no one is um, playing games or calling each other out. Um, it, it really, to me, has been one of the great things to see is, and, you know, there were a couple times, I remember when we negotiated the drought contingency plan, and we and this was when we had, uh, I believe, David Bradley and Charlene Fernandez as the Democratic leaders and Rusty Bowers and Karen Fan um, in their current roles. And everybody came in on a Saturday, sat at the table with the governor. We were on a ticking clock to get the drought contingency plan done. And I remember sitting there thinking, I really wish this could be live streamed so that everybody in the state could see that like, our government and our democracy aren't broken, that there are good people in office who can work with each other and be civil. 
Um, but those are, I think, the kind of things that 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 people don't see, but that are happening. And and so I'm really optimistic. And I think that um, that with the governor's leadership and the president um, and the speaker, there's a lot of great things that are possible. There are a lot of people, particularly on the Republican side, who have spent a lot of time talking about one big way in which they do think government is broken, and that's on the election integrity, election administration side. One of the things that uh, was interesting to not hear in the governor's state of the state was any sort of articulation about what he would like to see on that front. Does he think any sort of changes need to be made? And what do you expect to see on this front uh, during this session? Well, again, I'm not a spokesman, at least not anymore. So I can't tell you what what the governor wants to see. What I will tell you is that this uh, what I heard in the speech was that he did say we need to make improvements to our elections. And I think that um, that there are a, a lot of things that are widely agreed upon. And you saw some of that last session. Um, you know, frankly, I think that increasing the threshold for a recount um, is a really good thing. It would bring us more in line with other states. And, you know, maybe if you had that, you wouldn't have had everything that's transpired over the past year because there would have been an automatic recount of an election that that was razor thin. And I've been through recounts with uh, Martha McSally's race and others. And, and um, I do think if an election is close, it's warranted. Um, and so I think ours is, is really razor thin compared to other states. So that seems like a, a meaningful reform. Um, and some of these other things that have been done over time, but are not constitutionally protected, they're simply statutory, like voter ID. Um, so there, there, I think there's a lot of room uh, here for things that would be 70% issues with the electorate. for a moment and have you put on your prognosticator and your uh, experienced uh, uh, hand um, here for us. Carrie Lake seems to be the uh, the clear front runner in the gubernatorial race uh, for the Republicans at the moment. Um, th- has the governor spoken to her? Has he helped um, uh, make any kind of recommendations about issues? Do you see any such conversation uh, in the works uh, in the near term from him? That I don't know. I know that he shared at the chamber event the other day that um, he has talked uh, with several of the candidates and that he was going to keep those conversations uh, private. Um, I do think that the race is really just starting. Um, I think that this month will be key uh, now that we're in the election year. It's really uh, rare that people would get in so early. Uh, I was recalling to someone that Governor Ducey 
who was then treasurer, got in, and I think Yvonne was probably at this event to cover it, in, in February of 2014 in the election year. We're not even there yet, and we've got crowded fields. So that, you know, 2014 might as well be 100 years ago in politics. A lot has changed. Um, but I think that there is a lot of runway here left in the race. Not much has been done. Uh, no one has really been paying attention. Um, I will tell you, I have been pretty impressed by the Democrats' fundraising abilities. Um, I really do believe that this cycle uh, should be a, a good environment for Republicans to win. Uh, if you know a Republican is winning governor in uh, Virginia, where Biden law, uh, won by 10 points, it would stand to reason uh, that we would a Republican would win in Arizona, where the presidential race was essentially tied. But there's a lot of time left. And what tends to sometimes happen in a really good political environment for one party or the other is that people kind of think they can just coast. And I think that would be really dangerous for Republicans. This is a competitive state. There's a lot of things that could change between now and November. So I do think the candidate and the campaigns are going to matter. Um, and I think the Democrats are going to be really well funded. They have an interest in playing in this state. Um, so so I, I think that it's really important that our side, um, that Republicans take take the cycle and the race seriously. Um, and I do think that the Democrats fundraising has been pretty impressive, not just in that race, but in others. You think January is going to be um, an important month. Um, this has mm -hmm. been a month uh, surrounding a lot of speculation involving Governor Doug Ducey and his future and any potential continued interest in the U.S. Senate seat. He obviously um, is being courted by national Republicans. We know Senator Kyle, for example, um, has been among those dialing him up and trying to get him um, to change his mind and to uh, to run. Is there a timetable where that becomes sort of um, a, a must for him to announce ahead of any sort of election-related calendar? Do you expect an announcement anytime soon? Would you be involved in any <laughs> such announcement? Well, I think uh, the governor would be great at anything. I mean, honestly, I think he's one of the, the, I think he's the best governor we've had in the state of Arizona. I would love to see him continue in public service if there was the right spot. Uh, I know what you know, which is that he said he's not a, a candidate for, for U.S. Senate. Uh, I, I think that in terms of the calendar, the, the primary is a little earlier than normal. So, you know, I think July 6th is when early ballots drop. So there, there's runway for these races to still sh uh, take shape, but I'm not uh, speculating at all on that. I think that uh, I'll let the governor speak for himself, and I think he's pretty much answered that question once a week for the last uh, year. Well, talking about uh, January being an important month, 
we are once again going to be the site of a visit from former President Donald Trump. He Mm -hmm. is no doubt uh, expected to continue to urge Republicans to follow in his lead on both issues and candidates that he has uh, favored on this. You've sort of hinted at a caution to Republicans to not uh, coast into 2022. I get the sense from some of the folks that I've been talking to that there is some concern about the possibility that the party could nominate people who would be uh, problematic for them in a uh, general election setting, whether it's in the governor's race, secretary of state, in perhaps the Tom O'Halloran congressional district, that there are Republicans who could be cast as too extreme. Is the biggest threat to Republican success in 2022, not the Democrats, but Republicans overshooting in the primaries? Hmm. Well, it's a good question. I'm a, I'm a fan of primaries. I think competitive primaries are good. I think they, they, they tend to result in uh, people being better candidates when they come out of it. We have a unique situation in Arizona. The primary is a little bit earlier this year. It's the first week of August, which for Arizona is early because it used to be after Labor Day. But compared to the rest of the country, it is pretty late. So particularly in a race where you're challenging an incumbent, I think the, the, the primary does paralyze things. And the Democrats are just generally better at kind of surrounding themselves around a candidate. Now, I will say, I do think that, um, and I want to make sure I answer your question, um, I I do think that Katie Hobbs is a really bad candidate. Um, And I, I also think that Mark Kelly is incredibly vulnerable and um, has not really done a very good job utilizing the time since he's been sworn in to to do anything. I will tell you, it's just fascinating to me that these folks don't even campaign anymore. I mean, Mark Kelly won a statewide race. He won a U.S. Senate seat not campaigning. And I saw him the other day at the uh, Chamber of Commerce event at Chase Field. And it came across. I think he's really rusty. I don't think he's been in front of large crowds or venues. And so I don't know that they have the best candidates on the Democratic side. Uh, In fact, I think they've got really weak candidates. And I think Katie Hobbs has demonstrated that in many ways that she's not really ready for prime time on this. So I think we've got strong fields in all of our primaries. I think we've got really good candidates. I think the fact that so many people are getting into these races demonstrates that there's a real bench on the Republican side. And it is kind of shocking that the Democratic field for governor in a state that's supposedly this big swing state now is what you see. Where are the other Democrats? Where Where is their bench? They don't have one. Right. So to be clear, is the threat, the biggest threat to Republican success, Republicans in the primaries or Democrats? 
Well, I don't think the threat is Republicans in primaries. I don't know that the biggest threat is either of what you named. I think the biggest threat is if we become complacent and say, oh, Republicans won Virginia, Biden's numbers are bad, so we don't really need to do a whole lot. We just need to coast. And that, to me, would be really dangerous. And you've seen that in the past. I think we've got a campaign. We've got to make the case. We do need to go out and appeal to what we call in politics ticket splitters. There's a lot of them in Arizona. There's people who are going to want to vote for the person and not the party. So as Republicans, we have to go out and actually say, here's why our policies are better. It certainly doesn't look like anyone's taking a break based on my inbox, (laughs) to be clear. Um, The whole country instead seems to really be paying attention to Arizona in a way that perhaps they haven't before. What do you think is the most misunderstood thing about Arizona politics? Oh, wow. Well, I do still think we're a right of center state. Um, And all you have to do is look at Senator Sinema to understand that. I think that uh, whether or not you agree with her politics, most people generally think she's a good student of politics. And um, I don't think she would have uh, campaigned the way she did or be conducting herself the way she is if we were the next Colorado or not. I think people are generally coming here because they like the culture of the state and they're not looking to, to upend or change it. So, um, so I do think that Republicans still have a natural advantage with a good candidate at the ballot. And I think that's been a misconception that we've somehow become this blue state. We do have two Democratic senators, but that to me, I I hear a lot of people in D.C. who kind of think Arizona is the new Colorado. And And my firm does a lot of work in Colorado. I think Colorado is really different. And what happened in Colorado, um, and and the lead up to it really shifting more to a blue state um, was a lot different than what you're seeing here. I think we do have kind of a firewall here of independents who are going to keep this a really competitive state. Like I said, with a with a maybe a two to three point Republican edge if all things are equal. Um, than what you've seen in some of these other states that have really shifted. You've had um, a front row seat to one of the more consequential governors uh, in America and at a time of great upheaval in the GOP. Uh, Governor Ducey has been a punching bag, it seems, for both the left and the right at various times. Is there a moment that stands out to you as uh, something that kind of helps people who aren't in your business understand what it was like to be in the sort of the center of that storm these last few years? Mm-hmm. Boy, what a great question. Um, I think that uh, I, 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 there are many moments I think that, that I could, I could, point to. But um, I will say, 
first of all, I agree with you. I do think he's been a very consequential governor. Um, as he mentioned in the speech today, he's the first governor since Bruce Babbitt to deliver an eighth state of the state. He's actually the first governor since Jack Williams in the 70s, um, who was elected in his own right to office, didn't elevate, and will have completed two terms in office. So that's a big deal. He's moved through. And, and part of why that's a big deal is because you do have a governing mandate. A lot of these other governors who elevated and inherited the post um, didn't have that coming in. And so I think he had a governing mandate twice, one reelection by a larger margin than the first time. I think if you look at all the policies that have gone through, um, it's a lot. You know, I mean, you look at previous governors and they were, it's like, it was a big deal for Janet Napolitano to get all day uh, kindergarten. And that is kind of uh, seems like a footnote compared with the, the amount of things that have gotten done. I will tell you one instance to me where I saw it was when we were going through the uh, Red Fred teacher walkout. And um, the governor presented his plan, a 20% pay increase by 2020. And there were a lot of people who were calling on him to basically uh, say everybody's fired, um, which would have been a disaster, I think, in terms of um, just look at now what we're dealing with, with kids not being in school. So he knew that we needed our schools to be operating. Um, and then on the other side, it was like all these people who wanted a 20% pay increase, the moment he supported it, were opposed because it was just all politics. And so um, I do think that he, at a couple points in time, has been in these scenarios and he's been very smart at navigating out of it but also kind of ignoring it and i think that's one thing i've learned is it from watching him is not being so focused on the politics of the moment of the protests outside the executive tower um but really being resolute and um and and putting your head down and powering through some of these more tense situations. And um, I think it served him pretty well, because I think at the end of the day, people will look and say he was a really responsible governing leader. Um, and I think that's about the, the, the best you could hope for as a governor. All right, Daniel, well, thank you so much for your time, especially after big State of the State Day. I know you probably have uh, various things to get to, so we'll let you get to those. Where can people find you on Twitter? They can find me at Scarpinato, S-C-A-R-P is in Peter, I-N-A-T is in Thomas O. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's it for today, Gaggle listeners. Next week, you'll hear from our legislative reporters about key issues they'll be digging into this session. 
Before you go, please rate and review our show and share this episode with a friend. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Yvonne Winget. And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. Today's episode was edited and produced by Amanda Liberto. Thanks so much for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. You can also follow this show and other Arizona Republic podcasts, like Valley 101, on Twitter at AZC Podcasts. For The Gaggle, I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez. We'll see you next week.